Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Think Bad, Do Good, and it is my great pleasure to have Juliet Kayyem on the show. Hey, Juliet. Nice to see you. Great to see you. So for those of you that don't know Juliet, which is probably very few of you, she's a writer and security strategist and former assistant secretary for, was it Intergovernmental Affairs? Is that right? Intergovernmental, yep. Intergovernmental Affairs in the Department of Homeland Security and the author of The Devil sorry, the Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in the Age of Disasters, which is a great book title for our Think Bad, Do Good podcast. Yeah. It's, um, no, this book, it's been endorsed by people that I like really, really admire. Um, James Fallows, who's such a great writer. Yeah. Uh, some folks don't know he was um, Jimmy Carter's speechwriter. Yes. Yeah. Great thing. And Jim Clapper, who used to work down the hall for me. Um, which is, he was the former director of national intelligence. And like when I first met him coming into government, he scared me quite a bit, but uh, yes, because I didn't know him. <laughs> and Jay Johnson, secretary of Homeland Security. So she's got great endorsements. She's also a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, which is really one of America's best places of learning and public affairs. I worked there and studied there for a little while. And she has yeah. one of the most informative and entertaining Twitter accounts out there. Um, I want to say it's got like 300,000 or half a million followers or something. Um, Close, but, if not, but not, that, not that high, but it is, it is, uh, it's a good way to, to, to do things quickly, get your ideas out quickly. Well, after today's podcast, you'll be at a million. You got nothing to worry about. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, it's, her content is so, it's both entertaining and informative and also inspiring. So Juliet, thanks Thank for you. joining on the show. Oh, that's um, so nice. Can we end? Can we end the podcast now? Because it's all yeah. downhill from here. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. So thank you for coming, everyone. So uh, we're going to get into Juliet's book, which is going to be great. Which I've started reading it and enjoying it. Um, and I, I really love the opening uh, where you talk about the word astro, and I never knew this that in disaster, yeah. the word astro in Latin is embedded in the middle of it. Is that right? No, How? I'm probably it's, it's, dropping disaster, disaster and catastrophe. It's amazing because I've been in this field, uh, you know, sort of homeland security, disaster management, consequence management, call it what you will. And uh, and I never looked up the word disaster. And I thought, you know, I don't even know what it means. Like, I think I know what it means. And uh, it, it turns out this is, you know, as everyone, it, the, the prefix dis is not or bad or, you know, mal, like miss, you know, and then aster which is, of course, from the stars. And so the, the belief was that a disaster was some random and rare misalignment of the stars. And catastrophe has the same astro, right? So, so it, it struck me that, that the way we think about disasters, the sort of shock and awe, and this is the theme of the book, was, was, um, uh, had helped, it was still holding us captive, right? That we still thought that you know, we're sort of at the mercy of something that we... Uh, we can't anticipate, don't know what's coming, is random and rare. And so I, you know, basically the book is, is The Devil Never Sleeps, that if we can align um, our preparedness with, uh, with the expectation rather than the possibility that a disaster would happen, what can we learn uh, to do better? And, and essentially, if there's a bumper sticker for the book is, you know, how can we learn to fail safer? Mm -hmm. The expectation that we will fail, but yep. we can do it safer so that the measure of success isn't did we stop the bad thing from happening, but but could we minimize the harm once it inevitably did? Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Um, so 
there's a lot of serious questions I want to ask you about. Uh, so we're going to do that. But then you also just told me that you're a surfer. So at some point in the conversation, <laughs> at some point in the conversation, I want to bring that in. And I'll note, you know, you, you're, you grew up in L.A., but you surf in New England, which I think makes you even more of a badass than I knew you were. No, it's a, I'm not a winter surfer, though. I, the, I, I, I clear everything out by late September. But, yes, I, I try to hold on to California, Mike. I'm a bad New England mother. My kids never don't know how to ice skate. We barely went skiing. I, 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 I try to hold on to summer as long as I can. But yes, I am a surfer. It's funny because it does teach patience. I, mm-hmm. I probably I'm relatively calm dis, uh, disposition. Mm-hmm. I'm high energy, but I don't get phased very easily. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is surfing because you're you know you're sort of wait you people you wait a long time when you surf for the right moment, the right wave, and everything else like that. So. Yeah. Um, I've been doing it. Uh, I took a I took a couple of decades off to have kids, but I, I got back into it about a, a, a decade ago, and it's great fun. That's so cool. I'm very envious. I've tried surfing once. It ended really badly. It's exhausting for yeah, anyone who does it, um, and it looks really cool. You know, when I when I started working on resilience after I left the Obama administration, and, and yeah. maybe you can touch on this, is like one of the things that I think about for for anyone who's suffering through disaster or increased pressure and strain is you actually have to be self-possessed and have like an element of like like the ultimate fallback is kind of like you know confronting your own mortality and that's really deep and that's not the direction that i want to go in in this call necessarily or in this podcast but um but i want like it is true it it is it's true right yeah it is i mean but i mean it is sort of related to to sort of how to think about living in a world in which you know i call it the boom you know that's sort of this agnostic I'm pretty agnostic about what the threat can be, right? So it's cyber, or it's climate, or terrorism, or, or whatever. I don't mean to be flippant about it. It's just I, the devil. The devil takes many forms. But one of the lessons that I share in the book, because the the book takes from hundreds of years of disasters and says, what can we learn about what went right? Mm-hmm. Right. We always talk about what went wrong, what went right, in terms of learning to fail safer. And one of the lessons is extend the runway. That that what you're you're trying to do is not get to that moment where you're you you, you lost any capacity to to pivot respond, and so a lot of times just not getting to that panic moment actually ends up very very helpful. Yeah, that's right. And I love I love the line you have. A, I think a chapter called "Assume the Boom." Yeah, and I completely agree. Um, I completely concur with that approach. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Mm-hmm. And where yeah, you got so, it from? Yeah, so so I mean, I, I was torn about the title of the book. I wanted it to be Assume the Boom, but my, the publishers, and I think rightfully so, thought that that was, you'd have to explain it for too long. Where the devil never sleeps, it hopefully just brings you in. But, but um, you know, basically, uh, people in my field are simple, like we're relatively simple people. I often say, like, what I do is not rocket science, um, not creating a vaccine, but you know, you, you want me on the Titanic, right? And so the, the, the idea is there's only two periods of time to think of, and that's, that's what we call left a boom and right a boom. Left a yep. boom is all the prevention, prepared, uh, preparation, uh, protection efforts that say we put into a cyber network. The boom, as I said earlier, is agnostic. It could be anything, a cyber attack, ransomware, asteroids, whatever, and then write a boom. And what, and we're, the, our discourse about disasters is often about why did the bad thing happen? You know, why, why did, 
you know, failure. Why did we fail? Why? Mm -hmm. And then, or it's how do we build more resilient, you know, this future? And what the book is really about is the present. And it's, it's, it's you are here. That's a recurring theme. Every chapter ends with the three words, you are here. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and at that moment of the boom, what can you do uh, to minimize or what can you learn from these disasters to minimize because they are, uh, the harm because they aren't random and rare? And so in cyber world, as you know, you know, yeah. it's a, they say assume breach, right? And that's like a, like a nice way to think about it is you're just, if, if your network is open, assume breach. So there's things that you're going to want to take off the network. There's no reason, for example, uh, when the Chinese hacked into our security clearances, I'm sure you were a victim of this. You know, why, why were those even accessible, right? I mean, they're, they're historical documents. They don't need to be accessible. But I will say, and I'm pretty critical of the cybersecurity critical in the sense that, or at least my, my judgment of it, and I think it's starting to change, is the cybersecurity world talks assume breach, mm -hmm. uh, but still spends a, most of their time trying to stop the breach and a yes. lot less time on what would happen yep. if the breach happened. And, and that's, you know, I tell the story of Colonial Pipeline. Mm -hmm. Many people, many of your listeners will remember the ransomware attack on a gas pipeline and uh, and uh, and there was a, you know, a, a whole bunch of bad things happened. And there, they had one move once the breach happened. They turned off the entire facility for yeah. over a week. That's not a yeah. sophisticated failure plan. Right. That's that you can't do that. Right. And so um, and so trying to teach companies, I spent a lot of time doing that. Sort of okay. What what would be? You know, how do you extend the run, runway? How do you minimize the losses? How do you protect from uh, in my wonky world what we call cascading losses? Yeah. Well, let's talk about this for a second. So, yeah. I, I love your I love your points. Um, if you're going to assume boom or assume the boom or assume breach, what what are some principles that you would offer for yeah. organizations that are beginning to think like that? Like, okay, Juliet's out there. She's persuaded yeah. you to assume the boom. So now I need to take that next step. What do you tell them? Right. And that's the first chapter is, you know, get your head around it. I mean, a couple of things that I am recommending now. And so this is very topical. What I've seen in the corporate world where I spend a lot of time is, um, is the, is, is, uh, uh, they're designed unsafe. I call it the architecture of security. So what I tell companies to do is like, what, I mean, simply put, like, what does your organizational chart look like? So what you see a lot of big, and I'm talking about big companies, but smaller companies need to think about this too, is you saw after 9-11, the rise of the chief security officer, you know, that was like the former, you know, cop who's like, you know, uh, uh, guards, gates, and guns, the three Gs, right? That they're focused on sort of the physical. Then when the internet and everything, then you have the chief information security officer who's protecting the networks. I'll tell you, after the pandemic, you're seeing major companies, especially those in retail and, and the more physical assets, uh, hire chief um, health officers or chief medical officers because of what reactions, cruise lines and stuff like that. So that's like a lot of chiefs, right? And so, but when the boom happens, whatever it's going to be, your response as a company is relative is going to be relatively the same, right? How you know what is your communication strategy? What is X, Y, and Z? I'll get into that in a second. So the the, e the first thing is easy, which is what is your architectural design, and are, are people do do people have access to you as the CEO or as the leader? The second thing I recommend is is to is to um, in, in, in disaster management, like say an earthquake, we call them stupid deaths. It's, I don't mean to say the victims are stupid. It's that um, you see a lot of things 
Um, did I lose you? Nope, not at all. No. Okay, good. Sorry about that. I got a weird. Uh, is, you may have, I mean, he... I may be lost for all sorts of other reasons, but we are still connected. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but like, let's say a hurricane. So you have a hurricane and people die at that moment. Yep. But in most hurricanes in the United States now, we have what's called stupid deaths, right? It's not actually people are not dying from water or the wind. They're dying from, in, in the U.S. now, the majority of deaths occur because of carbon monoxide poisoning people start generating. So we call them stupid deaths because they're not, they're not, they're not at that very moment. They're the cascading. So yep. you can think about that, too, for a cyber network or sort of outside the fatality space and think, you know, what, what can I do to make sure I limit the losses? And a, a lot of that has to do with, with do you have appropriate situational awareness? Do you know what's happening? Can you uh, uh, create sort of la you know, uh, uh, layered responses so that an entire system doesn't go down? One of the stories, of, it, if there's nothing you get from my book, you get a lot of good cocktail stories, but one of them comes from the Super Bowl. People will remember when the Super Bowl in the third quarter went half dark uh, in New Orleans, the Superdome. Uh, that was because they had planned for cascading losses. So a, a super dome in half light is better than one in all dark, even though you would have viewed that as a failure. Uh, and so you can see ways in which companies are thinking about, okay, the expectation that something bad will happen. What, how do I stop the cascading losses? That's great. So what I like, you, you write about preparedness and you talk about, yeah. I think it's called the preparedness paradox. And I want to get yes, into that. Yeah. The, you know, from a cybersecurity standpoint, I've started thinking recently about like much more about readiness. So you want to get, achieve a state yeah. of readiness, which is, how do you, how do you, how do you correlate readiness and preparedness? Or are they the same thing? They're, yeah, they're essentially the same thing. And I think that's a good way to think about it. Readiness mm -hmm. is actually more present. I mean, mm -hmm. in some ways I, but it is called the preparedness paradox, and it's just and and folks who've been around a while in the in the in the cyber world will, will remember the best example of it is Y2K. The preparedness paradox in wonky world is just simply the more that you invest in being ready, as you say, Jonathan, being ready, mm -hmm. the the less disastrous the consequences are because you were ready. You, mm -hmm. you stopped, you know, you stopped terrible things from happening. But then it becomes harder to justify the investment because everyone will say, why the hell were you so freaked out? Like, yeah, nothing bad happened. And you're like, no, wait, I was, we were ready. Y2K is the perfect example of that, that in 1998, people started to notice or get alerted that our computers were not likely to go to 2000. They were likely to go to 0000, which would have been bad for a lot of reasons, banking, aviation, transportation. Uh, and spent billions, gazillions of dollars fixing it, so that when the the bell tolled on the new century, there were there were blips. It wasn't that it was perfect, but not a huge deal because of the readiness. Uh, uh, the narrative almost from the beginning, or almost from that moment, was oh, all those Y two K crazies were freaked out for nothing, and that's the challenge that we're always facing. But if so what's the response to that? Well, if you live in a world like I do where you're just you're not you're not guessing probabilities. I, I, I sort of say I, I'm done with risk assessments like I, I, we're bad at it or we get it wrong. I'm I'm into what's your high consequence event and plan for that. Like, I don't know what the likelihood is. I don't know what it is. But mm -hmm. and um, and the only way to be to overcome the preparedness paradox is, of course, perpetual readiness, as you say. 
yeah. uh, is that you just you you, in, you you it becomes part of your connected tissue as a company, an institution, even a family, and a small business. That's amazing. I met a, an Indian government official in 2015, and he was he told me that India had prepared for Y2K, and because they prepared for Y2K. It allowed them to withstand the brownouts and blackouts that came yeah. 20 years later. And I think there's an interesting point, which I'm sure you touch on, which yeah. is like if you prepare for one thing and people may be That's like, oh, awesome. that thing never happened. And you spent all these gazillions, but you actually ended up preparing for something very similar, which allowed that you is, to. Yeah, that's exactly right. That it's, it's it's that's the all hazards aspect to this. Right. That that. Um, that I'm, I don't, I'm done defining what the devil will be, right? I'm, I'm sort of like, okay, there's just going to be a disruptive moment I love how you for said that. your institution, You're like, your family. Yeah. I'm done talking about that. I'm part. done. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, and, and, and it's not that I don't want them to succeed. It's not that, it's just that, that they have enough focus, right? All the things about insurance and risk and whatever. I'm just like, can we just focus on the, the high consequence event and, and the, the, the beauty of taking these eight lessons, the book is, 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 is eight chapters of lessons and an introduction and conclusion. But if you take the eight lessons, right? So it's, it's you know, it is get your head around it. You, you've got to be ready. Part of it is about the architecture, situational awareness, um, uh, uh, um, uh, cascading losses, all the things we've talked about. Um, and if you, if, if you put yourself in that present moment, it won't matter what the boom is, because as you said, because if you prepare for Y2K, if you're ready for Y2K, you'll be ready for other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the difference between my approach, or you know, a, a reporter asked me, well, um, you know, what's the difference between being paranoid and being prepared? And I said, <laughs> it's easy. It's 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 perfection. I'm not. I am assuming a failure. Right. I don't need to live in. A, I, I don't talk about prepperism. I'm not a prepper. I don't talk about perfection. Mm -hmm. I am. I am trying to minimize losses, fail safer. And that that in the end is a standard of success. Right. We tend to think, you know, if we say left side, uh, left side of the boom, success, right side of the boom is failure. No, there's a there's a moment that if we're ready, we can define success. And, and this is true of COVID, but mm -hmm. we can define success in ways that sort of empower us because we know that we can do better and, and give us give us agency. I'm very much into agency because yes. you, know, you could be in this field and people, you know, it is it is hard, right? People are, as you were saying about working in resiliency, it's like, you know, it, it is, if you spend a lot of time in it, you, you might either, I say you have two options, tune out or freak out, right? And and there's got to be a third way, right? Which is which is we have agency yeah. to, to minimize the losses. Let me pick up, let me pull the thread on that a little bit. One of the things I've noticed about your career is you're often making interventions in the Atlantic right after a disastrous event, right? Like you're articulating yeah. a set of principles, you you put out a voice of reason and like, I, I, I love that, so keep it up. But one Thank of the you. things you, you mentioned agency, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about leadership and like yeah. what you've learned in writing this book about leaders and what lessons you'd offer for leaders that are trying to make society more ready and resilient. Yeah, yeah so it's good, especially uh, leaders who have employees. And so I, I think there's, I mean, there's so many, and this is not a book about, you know, I, I think I actually, I think it's Jim Clapper who says, I interviewed him in the book, I think it's Jim Clapper who says there's not, 
crisis leaders and non-crisis leaders, right? There's just leaders in a crisis, right? So, so part of it is what are my leadership skills? And I would say there are I mean, three core attributes that I talk about in the book. I mean, the first is, of course, getting your head around it, is that, is that you own this in a way that, that for too long people in leadership positions have delegated. So one of the stories I tell in the book is, is from a personal anecdote in terms of my um, uh, advising. I advise a lot of boards and CEOs. I was talking to a CEO of a Fortune 200 company, really great guy, you know, obviously smart, obviously successful. And I said, but I could tell he wasn't into, we were doing a tabletop. I could tell he really wasn't into it. So I just said to him, how often do you meet with your COO? And he says, five times a day. And I said, you're, you're CFO. He said, you know, at least twice a week. And I'm going down, you're a lawyer, whatever he wants, your communications person, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what about your chief security officer? And he says, just totally honestly, well, he's former FBI. He knows what he's doing. And you're like, okay, like yeah, that would be unacceptable for me, for you, for that to be your answer with the CFO or the lawyer, or whatever, right? You have to own it. So mm -hmm. it's first that, and some of that has to do with accessibility. Um, the second is if there's anything from a leadership perspective that matters in the moment of the boom, it's have you set up, especially in a world of disinformation, have you set up adequate what we call in disaster management and military situational awareness, right? Are, are yeah. you, are you? aware of what's happening in real time because if you if you um aren't you're not going to be able to make decisions and you can set that up now you can set up structures and i write about them in the book that make you more aware of what's happening and i have examples of when ceos look like they're being negligent and what you find out is they don't they don't have the access to the information that we would later learn um the third is uh i guess the 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 Third thing that I often think about from a, a, a leadership perspective is is uh, is communication. That's one of the key attributes of any leader. Like a CEO of a company is not going to control logistics, right? They're going to hopefully have someone who knows what they're doing or the uh, or have people in place. But are you communicating regularly? And that's this is my advice over COVID. Uh, to uh, mayors and governors that I advise and CEOs mm -hmm. is, is this is really long and it's really hard yeah. and uh, lots of rumors and lots of things. And you need to set up what we call the battle rhythm of communication, which is ever I was recommending every day until until it didn't have to be every day, but that, you know, you want they They want to hear from you every day, same time, same platform, email, whatever, have fun with it. People want to, you know, you know, show your dog, whatever, and relate two things, facts and hope. I've, I've now reduced all crisis communications to two words, right? Yeah. Facts, which is what the heck is happening, and hope, which is here's what we're doing to try to make it better, right? And, and you can think about Donald Trump, for example, who we always talk about the facts side, right? He always got the facts incorrectly or he related falsities. But he also was really bad on the hope side, right? I mean, it was it was that that people need to feel like things will get better, and and though and though one is not allowed to talk about him, I mean, I think that was why Andrew Governor Cuomo from New York was so became sort of this rock star for a while. Is that if you look at his daily press conferences, which were televised yeah. you know, nationally, it was 
here's where we are with the PowerPoints, here's the facts, and then here's hope, right? Yep. Here's here's what my grandmother's saying, here's what we're doing tonight, here's something. Yep. So those are those are three key areas that I focus on. I love that. That's incredibly, incredibly instructive. So um, the one thing that, that feels constant is relationship between all three of them, yeah. right? The one you pointed yeah. out about the, 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 the CEO who said, he's former FBI, so he's, he's got it. On one hand, that's a delegation of, that's like a, a not a delegation, it's a, um, it's a delinquency of leadership. You're sort of handing over yeah. the hard stuff to you know, Anthony Fauci, that equivalent. Like, I'm just gonna let Fauci run the show, or as it were, yeah. right? But on the other hand, like, the, there's no relationship between them. So if the, if, the, if the subordinate has to be like, I need an extra $10 million, he only is gonna get one ask about that, because after that, the right. CEO's not gonna trust that person. They're gonna say like, well, why are you doing That's this? Exactly what are your motives? right, what? yeah, right, exactly, exactly. That is that, is that person and their team and uh, will not feel like they have agency or not feel like they have authority if you don't give them access. And I talk about this in terms of boards, so for public boards or, or even private company boards, you know, something like 6% of all board membership is someone arguably in the security space, like, you know, but they tend to be former military, which is very different than disaster management. And think about that, like, like, you know, you've got all your friends from the venture capital firms, all your buddies from, right? Like, but what are they, what do they know? And, and if you don't have board representation, there's mm-hmm. no one at the big kids table, mm-hmm. right? Like I always call it the big kids table because that's where the things happen. Who is driving the, uh, the 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 as you say the readiness agenda? Yeah, well, that's that is immense. We have I, we don't want to go too long because we know readers these days uh, aren't driving, which means they're not listening to hour and a half long podcasts. But yes, I, obviously, yes. I have I have a million questions for you, and I'd love to have you back on, but. Um, I just I have a couple it. more, a couple more because okay. I think our listeners are, yes, <laughs> no, take your time. <laughs> um, what, what do you think in your analysis of preparedness and you spent, you've yeah. done a lot of good work on human psychology in the book. I can feel it coming through. What do you think is the reason why businesses and organizations aren't investing in the solutions that they know will work, whether it's in cybersecurity or anything else? Like what, talk to yeah. me about this cognitive problem. And I, the person who's informed me the most is also at Harvard, Daniel Gilbert. He's a psychologist. Yeah, yeah he's a really smart yeah. guy. But I'm curious for your thoughts on this because it seems like the no. There is. I mean, look, I mean, and that's no. I, I and I, I sort of address it in the sense of like, okay, here's here's the leadership of uh, uh, blindness, right? You know, in other words, that that is causing this, and some of it is optimism, right? You think about uh, 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 Silicon Valley. You know, they they're they're they they're they're disruptors, right? So they actually welcome this, right? And I was like, I don't. I don't break things i don't i you know we don't break things in my world we don't we don't want them to be broken um and so there is a lot about sort of what is it i from my perspective and what the purpose of the book is we're not telling the stories of of failing safer right in other words we're telling the story of hurricane katrina or whatever and and we need to tell the stories of how did it work so you were asking me before we got on what's my favorite story yes. and favorite yeah in the weird way I am, this is my favorite story, is uh, Fukushima, we, we, the 2011 nuclear melt, meltdown in Japan, radiation leak. So, so we have a narrative of Fukushima which has impacted the way the globe works. Germany got out of the nuclear industry, the Democratic Party got out of it, they're coming back to it now. People were like, well, this thing is unsafe because there was an earthquake, a tsunami, and then the radiation leak. 
all of it was knowable. We knew that building facilities there was dangerous, or Japan did. Part of it was the history of Japan and 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 it being a victim of a of, of two nuclear bombs that it didn't want to talk about nuclear facilities. So I tell the story so people think, well, nuclear disasters, we can't afford that, we're out. So I tell the story of the nuclear facility down the street from Fukushima that no one's ever heard of because it hmm. failed safely. It had prepared, it was ready, it empowered its teams, its leadership knew that the industry was risky and that you therefore had to invest in how would you fail safer with about six minutes to spare. Uh, so they were closer to the epicenter, so they had structural damage. They were closer to the uh, to the coast, so they got more water damage. With about six minutes to spare, uh, they were able to, my technical terms, unplug the nuclear facility. So that if you're thinking about what's my standard of success, right? I've got an earthquake and a tsunami. I've got one with a radiation leak, one without. I'm, I'm taking the one without. And we need to say, okay, so what did they do? They empowered their workers. They allowed uh, they allowed decision making at the operational level because, wow. um, you know, it, it, at Fukushima, you had the guys at the nuclear facility calling the prime minister's office. You're like, okay, now that's not good. They And they accepted the responsibility of, of failing safer uh, and, and aligned their training and planning around that. Okay, so now all of a sudden, I probably told you about a nuclear facility you've never heard of, Onagawa is its name, you've, you've never heard of. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's the story I want to tell. So when totally. you say, you know, what is, what's the psychology? Part of it is we're not telling these stories. So mm -hmm. uh, of, of measuring success, through less bad, right? That's a very technical term I use in the book, less bad. But I get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, look at COVID, right? So 1 million over 1 million dead, right? So no one who thought there was a global pandemic, no one in my space thought there'd be zero dead, but there's 250,000 dead is a better number than a million. I can sound crude, but I just want people to see like, okay, yeah, if we had gotten ready January to March of 2020, if we hadn't gone to war with the states and stuff like that. So thinking about what would work uh, is important. That's a I, that's a, actually a very inspiring story about the Fukushima. I'd never heard yeah. that before. That's just of course. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was the I, I, it was the excerpt and I write for The Atlantic, as you know, yeah. like it was an excerpt from the book in The Atlantic. And like most people who you would consider like knowledgeable in both either energy or disaster were like, I never knew that. I was like, yeah, we, know, we are so bad at telling those stories. And, you know, the press wants to follow the, the dead bodies, of course. But but if you look at who's, you know, you know, if you look at the not stupid deaths, right, the, yes. the, the you can see some some good investments about how companies aligned correctly. This is immensely valuable information. And Juliet, it's so great to have you on. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations on uh, your your million Twitter followers now that you've gone on this podcast in particular. I know, I'm getting a million. I know, I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's great. I, I, I had to say yes to uh, a podcast uh, that uh, uh, with a title like yours, because you know this is I live for this. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that's great. We're, we will we're going to tell the story of your book and you, uh, uh, and in whatever way we can. And it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah. And uh, look forward to the next time. Mm -hmm.